machine learning models require the use of training data, and that data needs to be labeled. Today, we have high-quality data infrastructure tools such as TensorFlow, but we don't have large, high-quality data sets. And for many applications, the state of the art is to manually label training examples and feed them into the training process. Snorkel is a system for scaling the creation of labeled training data. In Snorkel, human subject matter experts create labeling functions, and these functions are applied to large quantities of data in order to label it. For example, if I want to generate training data about spam emails, I don't have to hire 1,000 email experts to look at emails and determine if they're spam or not. I can hire just a few email experts and have them define labeling functions that can indicate whether an email is spam. If that doesn't make sense, don't worry. We discuss it in more detail in this episode. Snorkel is a pretty cool project. Braden Hancock works on Snorkel, and he joins the show to talk about the labeling problems in machine learning and how Snorkel helps alleviate those problems. We've done many shows on machine learning in the past, and you can find those shows on softwaredaily.com. And if you're interested in writing about machine learning, we have a new writing feature that you can check out by going to softwaredaily.com slash write. You can write about what you're learning about through the podcast, and that might be useful if you are an active learning type of person. Braden Hancock, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Developing machine learning models requires the use of training data, and that data needs to be labeled. Explain what training data is. Yeah, so with the most profitable by far branch of machine learning right now, supervised learning, you train a model by showing it lots and lots of examples of basically the decisions that you want it to make the classifications, you know, that you'd prefer it, it come to learn so that when it sees a given input, it, it's able to come up with an output of it. So right now it's basically a lot of show and tell with models. And if you want it to be able to work well in the future, you need to show it lots and lots of, you know, examples where you've already told it what the answer is. And that's what it goes in and picks up on. And how does data typically get labeled? Yeah, so the typical approach right now is almost comically manual in a way. It's, it's a surprising, at least to me personally, that we still generally work at such a low level. But right now, it's generally that each individual example you look at, you know, you or, you know, someone being paid by you, I guess, you know, crowd working is often a way people will approach this. But you look at individual examples and decide what label you would give it as a human and, and you mark that down and you move on to the next one. And so it, it scales very much linearly in terms of, you know, time and cost of labeling as human eyes essentially need to see each and every example that you're going to show to your model. Tell me more about how that results in problems, that manual labeling process. Yeah. So, I mean, for one, it gets expensive real fast, especially when the person who has enough subject matter expertise to do the labeling is someone whose, whose time is expensive. So, you know, when you've got a, a very narrow domain where there aren't a lot of experts and all the time labeling needs to be done by you, then that can add up because sometimes to get very best performance out of a lot of these models, you need thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands or millions of labeled examples. And that adds up real quickly. So sometimes there are limitations in terms of who can do the labeling. There are also often issues around how static this is. So I think anyone who's worked with machine learning and especially labeling training data in production has run into this problem where you specify the specs, you know, by which data should be labeled. And then after, you know, crowd workers or others you're working with start labeling, you realize, oh, that's not quite precise enough. I actually you know, meant that we should handle these edge cases in this way or that way. Or you realize that you know, maybe our schema is not quite right. Maybe we need actually three classes here, positive, negative, or neutral, and not just positive or negative. So you know, there's the element of like learning what exactly you intend for your model to do that can change over time, but also just you know, the fact that products that are out in the world or, or live machine learning applications naturally experience you know, changing product requirements over time, or just the, the data distribution shifts. And so there's this effect where your training data essentially becomes either ill-fit for your problem because it's now of the wrong schema, or there's a distribution shift. And so the examples that you're using to teach your model what to do no longer reflect the reality of the examples that it's going to see at test time. And so it, it ends up being subpar in those areas. And so that's why this 
the manual labeling process ends up being not just a one-time cost, but an ongoing recurring wheel of <laughs> burning time and money. Really to get optimal performance, you need to be constantly labeling fresh examples. I know this is a very subjective and project-dependent question, but how much data do I need for machine learning? Do I need as much as I can get? Is there diminishing returns to training data? Is there some cap on how useful an amount of data I need can be? Yeah, that's a great question. And the short answer is, of course, it depends, which is very helpful, I know. But no, it depends on a number of things. So there are some some rules of thumb. I mean, in general, when you have a relatively small you know, set of features that you're trying to learn weights for, you can get away with having a smaller data set. So examples of this are, you know, I've got a spreadsheet, I've got structured data fields, maybe 10 attributes for each thing that I'm classifying. And I just need to learn basically how to combine these 10 attributes. That's pretty doable with a small data set. You might be fine with a few hundred examples, depending on the complexity of, of how those different features interact. But a lot of the places where we've seen the most exciting progress in machine learning in recent years is over what are traditionally very hard domains to work in, ones that are very high dimensionality. So that's things like images or text. And in these domains, we've been seeing huge lifts by you know, taking advantage of deep learning models, which are able to essentially learn relevant representations, learn relevant features to use for a given problem. They're able to do that because they're very deep networks. So they're not just learning weights for combining features. They're in the lower levels, essentially learning relevant characteristics of the data to pay attention to. And in the higher levels, they're learning how to combine them. So this is, you know, very powerful, but to train that many more weights to now, now these models end up having not, you know, tens or hundreds of parameters, but truly millions or hundreds of millions of parameters in some of the most recent state-of-the-art models. So the trade-off is we can get awesome performance, but we really do need massive amounts of labeled training examples typically to accomplish that. And the subject matter experts that might be manually labeling data, if we're talking about a manual data labeling process, these subject matter experts could vary in their levels of expertise. So maybe if you had doctors labeling pictures of tumors, for example, Mm -hmm. and you wanted to manually label these. Maybe you have some doctors that label them. Maybe you have some medical students that label them. The medical students have less experience. And so you end up with less accurate labeled data. But I can get more medical students. So if I had more medical students labeling the data, and they were able to label a higher quantity of the data versus the doctors who might be labeling a lower quantity of data, but at higher quality, how does that trade-off spectrum get explored? What's the impact to the end model when we talk about a high quantity of lower quality data versus a low quantity of high quality data? So it's something, you know, I think that we've observed in recent years with this you know, deep learning revolution, as it were, as we people have found ways to successfully train these very large models that, you know, often it's saddening in a way, there's actually a great post about it, how we keep on thinking that making these, these models more human-like will make them do better. But in the end, just throwing more data at it often seems to bring the largest results, the largest boosts. So personally, I spent a lot of time in the natural language processing field, NLP, and some people, you know, refer to 2019 as the year of the transformers, which is a particular model architecture that's been used to great effect. And essentially, you know, organizations, individuals and researchers keep on training on larger and larger amounts of data, oftentimes, you know, automatically generated data that we're able to, you know, scrape from the internet and, and do some clever sort of, you know, techniques for labeling it. But the result continues to be this up ongoing upward trend that you know, rather than painstakingly picking the perfect 100 examples to show a model, if I can get 100,000 good enough, extremely cheap to, you know, acquire data examples, that ends up being, you know, the winning factor. You know, obviously, this doesn't work in all cases, there's potential if you've got, you know, these med students versus doctors situation, there may be something that only the doctor knows. And so, ideally, the ideal solution is we have a way of combining some votes from doctors and some votes from the medical students and we get extra quantity from the med students and we learn to trust a little bit more the inputs from the doctor and you know there should be ways to combine these and manually combining them becomes a 
bit of a whack-a-mole problem when you have lots of different sources of supervision signal that you know are of varying quality and accuracy and correlation with each other. But I guess maybe, you know, stealing my punchline here, but that's one of the things that Snorkel's been able to do well, that we spent a lot of time on the theory and academic side, proving that there are ways without additional human input to automatically learn, you know, what sources are worth trusting more or less so that you can take advantage of things that are easier to get in high quantity, even if you expect the quality to be a bit lower than if your most expert expert was seeing each individual example. And if I was feeding data into a model, let's say I had some data that was higher quality and some data that was lower quality. If I wanted to make my model aware of how confident I was in the labeling quality of different data sets, how could I do that? Could I potentially just weight the higher quality data sets more or how does that work in implementation? Yeah, there's you know a variety of ways that people do this in practice. One option, one thing that we've done with Snorkel is as we combine different sources of labels and they may disagree, three of my labelers say that this is true and one of my labelers says this is false. One thing you can do is just say, you know, the majority has it. You know, if there's more votes positive, we'll say you're positive, and then you just sort of round everything. But another option is to actually express in the labels themselves what your confidence in them is. So if I'm, you know, comparing one expert vote versus two non-expert votes, maybe I really trust my experts a lot more. And so, you know, I'll say, despite two-thirds of the votes being negative, because my expert's the one saying positive, the final label for this is going to be, you know, 60% 60% confident positive or something. You know, it'll be different for every situation depending on how much your sources vary in accuracy or how many, you know, contributing labelers you have, say, you know, for an individual point. But as you combine labels, you know, one, one way is to make these labels not hard integers. Do you belong to class zero or class one? Are you true or false? But rather to say, express your confidence, make it a distribution. So each data point gets basically a assigned distribution of how sure we are that it has each particular label. And then from there, it's typically a pretty simple modification to standard machine learning models to have them base the loss on that sort of weighted value rather than just a single hard, you know, truth number. There's one other option as well, and and this is something we've dabbled with with Snorkel in some fun and public ways, which is multitask learning. So that's maybe a separate conversation from how you supervise in general, but there are sometimes ways of changing the order in which your model sees different data. So you could pre-train essentially on the lower confidence data to just learn the most relevant representations that you want your model to have access to. And then you fine tune, as they call it, on your very most accurate data. And that's where, you know, where your model essentially just learns the best way of combining these relevant features in a way that's you know most specific to your example. So those are a couple of techniques and there are other ways as well I'd say in general, there's a lot of additional exciting research to be done in this area in terms of how to combine data and supervision sources of varying signals. And that's, you know, a field we've been happy to contribute to in a number of ways, but by no means is it, you know, (laughs) saturated or solved. All right. Well, I wanted to give us a preface for the domain that we're talking about before we get into Snorkel. Explain what Snorkel is. Snorkel is... It began as an open source project at Stanford a number of years ago, four or five years ago. And it is, you could say, a framework for automatically or programmatically generating training labels to build training sets. So the origins of the project where we were looking, and this is, I guess, a formula that I would recommend in general for researchers, is take a look at what people are doing in practice to get good results and then see if you can formalize it. Look for the hacks and then you know, if people are doing it, presumably it's it's survived the, you know, Darwinian sort of setup of, of research and there must be some value in it somewhere. So we looked at what are things that people are already doing to satisfy this big need that they have for getting enough labeled training data for models, these increasingly data-hungry models. And we looked for a way to formalize that, to theoretically ground it and make it into a repeatable, understandable process. So in Snorkel, we recommend an approach where instead of labeling each individual example in your training set, you have a large collection of unlabeled data and your inputs are no longer individual labels on those examples, but rather labeling functions. So these are, you know, can be a a number of different things. As far as the framework's concerned, it's just a black box function that 
when it sees an example, will assign it some label, its vote, for what the label should be on that example, or it can abstain if it thinks it doesn't have expertise enough to, to label this example. And I'm anthropomorphizing here, but you know, really this, this can be something as simple as a heuristic that says, you know, if I see this keyword in a sentence, label it, you know, true, otherwise abstain. And, you know, basically these labeling functions the user write become now the proxy labelers that will take your intuitions that you would have used to label examples, but now they're encoded in something that can be applied at massive scale. So the user writes these labeling functions, and these are executed on your large amount of unlabeled training data. And Snorkel includes an algorithmic component, in addition to that abstraction of a labeling function, that then will automatically learn how much to trust these individual sources of labels, and which ones are correlated, and how to most appropriately combine them into those confidence-weighted probabilistic labels. And that then, you know, as a result, gives you a large automatically generated training set that you can now train a model on to accomplish the task that you care about. And to refine this, there's a term in the Snorkel paper. There's a paper about Snorkel, by the way, if listeners want to check that out. But you mentioned the term data programming in that paper. Can you define the term data programming and explain what that means? Sure. So in the beginning, we, you know, we first said there's a thing here, you know, there's, there's a thing people are doing and we want to formalize it. And we came up with theory and we came up with methodology around it. And then we, we needed a name for it. And so we thought, what is it that we're actually doing here? How is it that we are, you know, actually approaching machine learning here? How could we describe that? And then the realization was that we are, you know, training a machine learning model by focusing, you know, not so much on minor tweaks to the model architecture, but really by shaping, by sculpting a data set. And that's what is going to be utilized by the model to solve our problem. And so, you know, data programming, I'd say, you know, based on the way we've used it in the papers in the past, describes this general approach of taking programmatic labeling sources and combining their outputs in an unsupervised way to create a training set for yourself. But from an intuitive standpoint, I think of it just as the focus on you know, if you want to increase performance of a machine learning model, almost always, in my experience, your time is best spent by going back to the data and seeing if, you know, the labels that are there are clean enough. If you don't have labels, do you need more? Or are there ways that you can sort of in bulk update the labels, you know, maybe even heuristically with things like labeling functions to shape it to be, you know, the right conveying the right types of trends that your model then is going to pick up when it's trained to basically mimic what's in your training set. And getting into how Snorkel works in more detail, you've alluded to this term, but I'd like to go into it in more detail. Tell me what a labeling function is. So the labeling function you could think of as like the, the core, you know, primitive under the hood that Snorkel works with. And, you know, basically where in a traditional approach to machine learning, the input that a system gets from humans is individual labels. So that's, you know, individual examples get, you know, an output from you that says what you think the class is. Labeling functions just kind of go one level higher. And instead of you saying this example is true, you say, when I see this, you know, this property in an example, label it true. Or when an example exists in this other database that I've already collected, label it true. Or when a crowd worker who maybe doesn't have as much expertise as me, but likely is you know better than random, when a crowd worker votes a certain way, or, you know says true, label it true. So a labeling function can really be a lot of things. It can be a wrapper around existing models that you have, or you know as I mentioned, a pattern matching sort of rule or another heuristic that you have. But in terms of like functionally, all that matters is a labeling function is a function of some sort that when a data point comes in, it will either output a label for it with some accuracy, which may be unknown, and we're going to learn that automatically, or it abstains and says, you know, this isn't in my wheelhouse, so I, I won't vote here. And then the, the key is that by the time we've written a number of these labeling functions, a dozen or 20 or so, and combined their outputs, even if none of them individually is extremely high accuracy, you do find that by combining all these, you're able to actually generate fairly high quality labels. But most importantly, you can create them at orders of magnitude, larger scale, presuming that you have enough unlabeled data to apply them to. Right. And each of these labeling functions, they're defined by a subject matter expert. I mean, well, depending on 
you know, maybe you could have multiple labeling functions defined by a single subject matter expert. But can you give me an example of the relationship between a subject matter expert and a labeling function? How does a subject matter expert create a labeling function? Yeah. So having been the effective subject matter expert a number of times back when I was doing my PhD and we, we had different you know projects we worked on, different domains we worked on where we needed to achieve high quality. I've done this process quite a few times myself. So typically what, you know, what I would do in a new domain is flip through the examples and look for, you know, just think to myself, essentially, when I go to label an example as true or false or, or whatever the class may be, what is it about this example that's giving the evidence to me that that's how I should label this? So maybe just to make this concrete, let's say there's a data set of emails that I want to classify and some of them are spam. And so I want to basically train a classifier to filter out these to automatically recognize spam before it hits the inbox and remove it. And some of them are not spam or to use a colloquialism from the field, we'll call them ham. And so if I'm looking through emails and I see you know, an email that says, dear sir or madam, I have a great opportunity for you. I would like to sell you some Viagra. It's way cheaper here than anywhere else. Act now. I think to all of us, that's pretty obvious that that's spam, but why is it? Well, there could be a number of things that tipped us off. It could be that there are lots of misspellings or grammar mistakes in it, or that I see a particularly formal dear sir or madam at the beginning, and that's maybe something I see more often in spam emails. Or perhaps most glaringly, the fact that they're trying to sell me Viagra, which is something that doesn't happen very often in legitimate business email. So I could just say, you know, for this example, that's spam and move on to the next example. But I may end up seeing, you know, tens or hundreds or thousands of emails as I label that have these same properties, that dear sir or madam, or act now, buy, 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 or, you know, mentions of prescription drugs, those same, you know, dozen or so clues to me that this is a spam email. You know, one way to teach my model that is to label enough examples over and over and over again that have that property that I hope that now my model will pick up on that. Or alternatively, I could write a labeling function and say, you know, when you see you know, the word Viagra, or give it a, maybe a list of prescription drugs, when one of these is present in the email, then can label it as spam. And with that one input that I've given it, that one small heuristic, I may be able to automatically label thousands or tens of thousands, depending on how large my data set is, automatically. And then, you know, we're able to take a lot of these. And even though there may actually be a small number of emails that were valid that mentioned a prescription drug or that had uh, legitimate, you know, typos that were just on accident and not, you know, maybe of a more suspicious nature. By the time we've combined a number of these different signals, we're able to generate still a, you know, a fairly high quality data set for a classifier that can end up being, I mean, in the high 90s in terms of, of accuracy at the end of the day. And so in practice, would a single subject matter expert define multiple labeling functions to be run over the same data set? Or would you do something like you get a panel of subject matter experts and each of them define a single labeling function? How does the generation of labeling functions by subject matter experts work in practice? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, historically, you'd most often see this done in like a crowd worker setting where you've got, you know, people who are, are not special experts on your topic, but who you, you think will be able to produce, you know, usable enough labels, especially if you get three or five of them to, you know, input their votes, and then you'll take the sort of, you know, most common class. So that's, that's your typical crowd worker setting. But I, you know, what I found though, particularly powerful about Snorkel is it really does enable now very small teams, sometimes even a single person to on their own now label an entire data set of 100,000 documents without having to form, you know, to get a warehouse full of people somewhere labeling to help them. So I'd say the most typical setup that I find is there is one or two, you know, domain experts on a project, maybe a small team, maybe you've got a data scientist, a subject matter expert, and a machine learning engineer working together or something. It really depends on the setup. But in general, I'd say, you know, all it takes is one person who knows the problem well to be able to produce these labeling functions. And because, you know, each function is relying on a different signal, you're able to get some of that independence that you'd ideally like to have when it comes to combining lots of different sources. You know, you used to be able to get that when you were just getting labels, 
you know, you, you get labels from different people such that if one person is relatively low quality, then they'll be sort of overruled by the others. But now you can have a very small number, one or two experts, right, in a bunch of these different labeling functions. And if, you know, some of those are of lower quality than the others, then the other, you know, labelers, which in this case is functions, no longer humans, that's something we'll be able to automatically pick up in the system and then, you know, downweight or remove automatically. You gave the example of spam classification. And if I'm classifying spam, I can imagine a variety of text-based labeling functions, as you said, like if this email contains the word Viagra, label it a spam. If this email comes from some set of domains in Eastern Bloc countries, perhaps, mm-hmm. I want to label it a spam. Both of those labeling functions could be applied to the same sets of emails and give you a signal in both of those cases. Just to give people more examples of how these labeling functions work, could you Describe how these labeling functions might work in an image classification problem, for example. Yeah, that's been a really interesting area of work because it's true when you've got a text, there's a natural sort of unit to refer to, and that's, you know, words or sometimes metadata, like you mentioned, if I've got the originating IP address of these emails. So with images, there are a number of different approaches we've taken in the past. One of them is actually still taking advantage of metadata. So we we actually had a very interesting project with some researchers at Stanford Medicine where they had x-rays and these x-rays did not have labels for whether or not they were, you know, indicating, you know, a problem, whether they were acute or emergent, you know, of indicative of an issue that needs additional attention or they were benign. But they did have accompanying doctor's reports, which (laughs) actually was, you know, text again. So interestingly, they were actually able to write labeling functions over the text to apply labels to these these x-rays, transfer those labels onto the images, you know, from their corresponding text reports, and then train an image classifier that only looked at now the image. So it was interesting. They were actually able to train, you know, a very highly effective image classifier that took only, you know, images as input, didn't require a doctor to to take a look at it first and, and write notes, of course. And, you know, we were able to match about eight person months of of labeling of those images with Snorkel taking only about a day of them writing labeling functions over these associated reports. So that's one setting, which we sometimes call, you know, cross-modal, where you take advantage of other modalities of the data and transfer them to images. But in other cases, in other situations, you know, that's not an option. And so we do actually want ways to refer to properties of the images. And that's a bit trickier because whereas, you know, text has this natural unit of a word, the natural unit for an image would be, you know, a pixel or something. And it's it's tricky to, to write a labeling function based on the value of individual pixels. So, it, you know, in practice, what we do instead is we, you know, pre-process the images to add what I think of as additional hooks, additional uh, things that we can refer to as we write our labeling functions. So, There are lots of great, you know, off-the-shelf, open-source, pre-trained models for doing different things like, you know, identifying common objects or, you know, identifying blobs, essentially, segmenting pictures. So, you know, in the medical case, we, in a different project, were able to make some of these primitives where we were able to automatically identify basically, you know, portions of the image that had differing properties that essentially were, you know, blob-like, for lack of a better word. And they were able to comment on things like, you know, if the blob is has a, a certain you know perimeter to area ratio, or if it's in a particular location in the image, or you know different things like this. You know, using their domain expertise, they could still talk about you know what would be fishy or not. But they were referencing these sort of extra layers, you know, above the image, not the pixels, but you know the things that we were able to detect in it and sort of make available to the annotators. Another you know, example for the, the non-medical folks here might be, there's another project where we were making uh, visual scene graphs. So basically trying to identify types of scenes or activities in images. So you know, one example would be we're looking for instances of a person riding a bike. Maybe this is for a self-driving application and we want to be very aware of where the bike riders are. So you know, a, a model that's been trained on ImageNet, this is you know, just an image classification model, can you know, probably with high accuracy, identify instances of people and instances of bikes, 
but no one's trained a model as far as I know to explicitly just recognize people riding bikes. So one thing we could do is, you know, pre-process these images with this tagger that marks with bounding boxes where all the people and bikes are, and then write our labeling functions over those primitives. So we could say, you know, if there is a person box and a bike box, and the person box is, you know, lower than the bike box in the picture, then the person's probably not riding the bike or else they're upside down and they're mm -hmm. in trouble. Or, you know, if the person box is twice as large as the bike box, then probably the person's in the foreground. And so they're probably not riding, you know, the bike. So these types of additional layers give you things to talk about. And you can take that same approach with, you know, time series data or video data or other, you know, types of data that don't have the equivalent of, of keywords to refer to, essentially. It's a powerful example. So these labeling functions, the generation of data through labeling functions, it's referred to as weak supervision. Can you generalize this term? What is weak supervision? Yeah. So if you go actually on, for anyone listening on snorkel.org, we've put up a bunch of blog posts that we've you know created over the years of working on this project some related to particular papers, other just answering, you know, frequently asked questions. But one of those is a great summary that we wrote up about weak supervision. What is it and how it relates to other topics within, you know, data labeling and supervision in general. But to summarize that here, I'd say weak supervision has to do with, you know, supervising or basically providing labels, you know, for data at a higher level. So, you know, it reflects this idea that the labels you generate via a weak supervision approach will likely be, you know, of slightly lower, you know, quality, say, or strength than if an expert were to look at each individual one and say, with 100% confidence, this is true, and 100% confidence, this is false. Instead, we're able to generate, you know, much larger amounts of labels that are strongly correlated with the true examples, but perhaps less confident, perhaps a little bit noisier. But that's often a trade-off we're willing to make because of the benefits we now get in terms of you know, being able to label 10 or 100 times or 1,000 times more data or being able to rapidly adapt so that when there is a change in our product needs or in our data distribution, the labeling process is now, you know, one of, you know, updating a couple of labeling functions and pushing the re-execute button rather than you know, whipping up an updated set of guidelines for annotating and going back and touching each individual example again. And... If I'm using a labeling function to label my data set, have you done any benchmarks for how the accuracy compares to a human expert individually labeling each piece of data? Yeah, it's a very frequent comparison that we've been interested to make because at the end of the day, we don't want this to just be you know, a science project. And if it doesn't solve real problems, if it's not actually usable in the wild then what's the point of doing it? That's always a focus, at least for me personally, of my research. I want to make sure that it's, you know, solving real problems and not just interesting. There is obviously a place for purely theoretical work as well. But so, you know, basically in most of our papers related to Snorkel, which again, you can find at snorkel.org, we've done that kind of comparison, looking at how hard is this problem? If I had, you know, ground truth labels, we'll say manually annotated labels, how do we compare? And it obviously varies, you know, what that sort of ratio is by domain, but we found it in a number of domains that, you know, we're able to actually get even higher accuracy, higher quality classifiers or models trained using the weak supervision approach. And that's because, you know, each individual, you know, label may be slightly more inclined to be incorrect, but because we have so much more data for our model to learn from, it's able to learn more generally, you know, high quality boundaries for itself. So, Sometimes you, we find ourselves getting very close to the, you know, baseline comparison of what if we had just, you know, put up the time and money to label all these ourselves one by one. And we are happy to say, you know, we're within one point accuracy or, or 1.1 score for an extraction task. But other times, if we have enough unlabeled data, and we've actually been able to prove that we do expect the same sort of scaling that you'd get by having more labeled data, if you have enough labeling functions. But if we do have enough unlabeled training data to convert into a training set by just tossing in more raw documents or raw data points, you can often even exceed the score that you could get if you just had a set amount of labeled data. So in practice, the labeling functions and their results are used to build a generative model. So you might have a situation, let's go back to the spam model, 
let's say we have 100,000 spam emails and I define 100 different labeling functions. So maybe maybe I even have 100 different people who say maybe there are varying expertise in identifying spam, but I have each of these 100 people develop their labeling function. One says, okay, I want every email based on it where its IP address, where it originated from, I'm going to label it as spam or not. If it comes from this certain city that's well-known for spamming, then I want to label it as spam. Otherwise, it's not spam. Maybe I have other people that are generating labeling functions based on the, you know, have it, whether an email has Viagra as a string inside the email. And you have these 100 different labeling functions. You apply it to all 10,000 emails in each case. And then you have a set of labels. You have labels that have been applied to each of those pieces of data. And then you can use all of that newly labeled, functionally labeled data to build a generative model. Can you explain this step? Explain the the step of taking all of this data and building a generative model. Yeah. So in our papers, as we talk about the generative model, that's generally referring to the model that we use that learns how to combine the votes from these various, you know, noisy labeling functions and convert them into a single confidence-weighted label. So, you know, in our very first iteration of data programming, we used a probabilistic graphical model here. So we, we modeled this problem as follows. We said that each data point has some true label, which we don't know. You know that's a hidden value for us. But there are things that we can observe, and that's, you know, the labels output by these labeling functions. So if we assume that each labeling function has a parameter that describes how likely it is to vote and a parameter that describes how likely it is to be correct when it votes and that these have, you know, some correlated effect with the true label, you know, which is to say that if in general, you know, these aren't just random labeling functions, but they're on average slightly better than random at least, then we can recover some of these unknown values by just looking at the maximum likelihood situation that would have created the labeling matrix that we're now observing. So originally this probabilistic graphical model was what we called our generative model that would, at the end of the day, produce a probabilistic weighted label for each example that had one or more labeling functions voting on it. Since that first paper, we've been able to do a number of pretty awesome additional improvements and refinements, and I've actually switched to a different technique where it's more of a matrix completion-based approach. You know, in our papers, walk through that more it's made it an even more kind of scalable and, and stable process. But the idea is the same, that ultimately there's an algorithm here in the middle that we'll use to, based on what we can observe, which is how these labeling functions are voting, infer the most likely values for the things that we can't see, which is the, the actual, you know, in, in air quotes, true accuracy of each of these labeling functions and the you know, most likely confidence-weighted label for each example. And so once the generative model is created from these labels, what do you do with it? What can you do with that generative model? Yeah, I'd say that's perhaps the most frequent question we've had over the years about Snorkel is, you know, if I've got all these rules and if I have a way of combining them to output one label per example, then why do I need to go train another model? What do I gain from now training a discriminative model like a logistic regression you know, classifier or a deep learning model? And the key, I'd say, there's a number of cool benefits here and things you can do by taking this generative model and using its outputs to train another model, which we sometimes call the end model or the discriminative model. But perhaps the biggest one is generalization. So these labeling functions, we allow them to you know, be experts in small domains, which is to say that they don't have to each be a pseudo-complete classifier that can make a reasonable prediction on all examples. Each individual labeling function you know, maybe 80% accurate on the 5% of the data set that it labels. So when you combine all these labeling functions, we'd obviously like to have high coverage of our training set, but in almost every case, um, you know, we find that there's usually a portion of our data set that has no labels, that it, you know, there are no, none of our labeling functions actually applied to that specific example. So, you know, we may find that by the time we've combined all our labeling functions, we only have, you know, votes for approximately 60% of our training set but we'd like a model that now can make a prediction on 
you know, more than just 60% of incoming emails. So, you know, this generative model was trained using the outputs of these labeling functions and the 60% of the data set that we did have some signal on. But then when we take this and train a additional model, the end model or discriminative classifier on these examples, we can use a feature set that's more generally applicable. So, you know, in the very simplest case for this spam classification example, that could just be, the features could be a bag of words, basically word counts for words in each email. But the nice thing about this now is we can generate that set of features for every email that comes in rather than for just the 60% that our labeling functions cover. So to maybe make this, you know, more concrete or intuitive, you know, if I, we can even look at the simplest case. Say I just have one labeling function. My one labeling function says, if you see the word Viagra, label this email spam. That labeling function may only apply to, let's say, 5% of my data set. So that's very low coverage. And if I tried to use that classifier alone, I would miss out on all sorts of spam emails that would make their way through because they didn't match that very specific feature that I was able to mention in my labeling function. Maybe that's because there are other types of spam, maybe because they're selling other types of prescription drugs, or maybe because they misspelled Viagra or had a little asterisk between each letter to make it stand out or something. So our label model in this case, basically the combination of our labeling functions that combines their outputs would be a pretty lousy classifier. But if I take the data set labeled by that labeling function, those, you know, that 5% of 100,000 emails gives me a data set now of 5,000 examples that I can say are spam, and I train another classifier on that, then you can imagine how this classifier, when it sees 5,000 negative examples, will observe all sorts of other correlated features. So in those 5,000 emails that mention Viagra, I will almost certainly see, you know, additional instances of shifty IP addresses being used. Maybe, you know, like you said, from Eastern Bloc countries of cities where there are known to be lots of spam attacks, or I will see other prescription drugs being mentioned, or I will be seeing other, you know, high frequencies of words about buying and click on this link and, you know, send money via wire transfer and things like that. So even though I only have, you know, one input signal there that covers a very small portion of my data set, when I transfer this knowledge to a new model via a labeled training set, it's able to pick up on all sorts of additional features, including ones that I never specified in one of my labeling functions, but which do co-occur with the training set that I've now formed. And that's, you know, the power that we get here is you can, you know, have a very direct input, very interpretable inputs, these rules that I write that are very natural for me as a subject matter expert to talk about. But then the final output of the snorkel system is not just a rule-based system with all of its, you know, susceptibleness to being brittle because it's rule-based, but I actually get out a trained machine learning model that can handle now the long tail of examples that look similar to, but not exactly like those examples that my rule labeled. Are there certain domains where the snorkel way of doing things works better than in other domains? And are there certain domains where it's just, for some reason or another, not workable to use snorkel in this way of generating weakly supervised data? Are there domains where you can only have strongly supervised data and the models trained from that strongly supervised data? Yeah, that's a great question and an important one because I think very few techniques work well everywhere. So there are a number of things that we, you know, sort of, you know, require or presuppose when applying snorkel. One of those is that you're going to have lots of unlabeled data available. So if for some reason the, the type of data that you're collecting is extremely hard to get and you only have 500 examples, it's really not worth it for you to try and, you know, create this system for automatically labeling those 500 examples when you may be able to just as quickly label them yourself and then you know you've maxed out and there's nothing else to apply these labeling functions to so you might as well have as high quality labels as you can get given that you have a small data set size so one of them is you know if you don't have unlabeled data to apply these to to create an automatically generated large training set it may be worth just manually labeling another thing you need to consider is do you have sources of signal to refer to. So, you know, with text, often that's a no-brainer. Yes, you've got access to the words themselves, and there's a lot you can do with that. And we mentioned how there are workarounds for things like images and videos and things by using primitives, but there are lots of machine learning applications out there and domains where it's applied. So something you'd have to look for is, 
you know, as humans label this data, is it possible for them to ever give a reason for why they're labeling something in a certain way? Because if so, then that can become labeling functions for them. If not, or if it's very hard for them to do, then you may have a harder time expressing rules that can be applied sort of in absentia of a human looking at each individual example. A third you know, thing you'd want to consider is, you know, do you have models in your domain that can take advantage of large data sets? So you know, with text and image, I think the, the proofs in the pudding, absolutely the very best models today are ones that are able to you know, learn their own features. You know, not for every problem, of course, but you know, there are models that are prepared to not saturate after the first 1,000 examples, that if you give them 10,000 examples, they'll do even better. And if you give them 100,000 examples, they'll do even better. Those are areas where it's particularly advantageous to have massive training sets. And that, that therefore, there's a bigger advantage to using a type of framework like Snorkel that allows you to magnify your ability to label training data quickly and efficiently. And then I guess the final thing to consider, and this is less where Snorkel is feasible and more just where it's most advantageous. When we go looking for relevant areas to apply Snorkel to, we often look for places where it's either hard to acquire label training data because you know subject matter experts are very rare or very expensive, or we look at places where you know labels have, let's say, a short shelf life. So the data distribution is ever shifting, or you're in an adversarial setting where whatever your model is classifying as spam, the spammers are going to you know come to recognize that and start trying new techniques, start trying to mask their IP addresses, or start trying to use other words, or start trying to misspell the words that your keyword matcher was looking for. So these dynamic settings where you think you're going to need to frequently update your labels, that's a great candidate for where you would want to have a more dynamic approach rather than sort of a never-ending wheel of labeling. Do you have any good examples of case studies for how Snorkel has been applied and has solved a significant real-world problem? Yes. And we're really proud of all the places that Snorkel has been able to be used. So again, on the snorkel.org website, we've got a collection of all of the public facing you know, artifacts we've been able to produce. There have been a lot of fantastic collaborations over the years in the lab. And of course, I'm most free to talk about the ones where we've been able to put out something that's public facing. But some of the ones that stand out for me, I was able to be a part of a project with Google. There's actually a port of the open source that was moved into Google's infrastructure called Snorkel Drybell. And, you know, with them, we were able to apply Snorkel to some very economically valuable pipelines, we'll say, and see some pretty massive wins. You know, they found themselves in a situation where, you know, obviously Google has immense labeling budget, but there was still definite advantage to being able to automatically generate labels, both for fast turnaround, as well as for just the ability of combining lots of different types of signals across an organization. And so in that paper, if you just search for Snorkel Drybell, you'll find it. But we're able to talk about how Snorkel was used as sort of a middleware for dumping in lots of different rich signals from across an organization, resources that they already had. But Snorkel allowed them now to combine them all into one classifier that was supervised with the combination of these different you know, sources and techniques. And that was able to provide, in some cases, double-digit improvements over you know baseline systems that we compare to there. So that was a very memorable one for me, but we also include on the, on the website links to papers we've written with Intel, Chegg, IBM, Apple has a system as well that was inspired by Snorkel. So you know, those are some of the companies. There's also been a number of science projects, which is to say projects that are focused more on, you could say scientific goods. So I mentioned that Stanford Medical example. Another project I was able to be personally involved with was gene-wide association studies. So there are periodically papers that are you know, published that say we found a significant relationship between this gene and this disease or phenotype. And you know, there's definitely a desirable goal of having all of these findings in one place in one searchable database for everyone to go to so that the same work doesn't get lost or duplicated. And so we were able to spin up an automatic extraction system for you know, being applied to hundreds of thousands of these documents and automatically classify and identify these relevant things being found. And so we you know, were able to take this automated system and automatically extract a large database of these relationships. And that's now open source and, and publicly available as well for research or other uses. So those are a handful of examples, but really it's been, I think, over 40 or 50 organizations we've been able to work with. And the applications have really, you know, covered the spread in terms of, you know, domains and 
types of problems and even data modalities. How do you anticipate the project evolving in the near future? You know, the project began as a number of us began our, our PhDs at Stanford, and you know now most of us have graduated, and so we are in the process of transitioning it out of Stanford and into a project that will be supported in different ways. It's still open source and, and will continue to always be the, the current library that's out there. But there's also, I'd say, you know, aside from just the individual current project, I think there's a lot of interesting things to happen on the research side around this whole sort of paradigm of, of this new way of approaching, you know, machine learning, where we want, you know, more signal collected in easier and higher level ways rather than sort of that manual approach. So the lab, Chris Ray is the professor who led a lot of this research at Stanford, and a number of his students have continued on in some very interesting areas related to this. Some of those include, you know, moving what I would say higher up the stack. And so, you know, rather than writing labeling functions and code, maybe we can infer what the functions should be from natural language. That was actually a project that I started that some others have continued to work on where users would just explain why they were labeling something a certain way in natural language. And we had a parser that was trained to automatically convert explanations into functions that could then be applied, which was pretty cool. But, you know, even further up the stack, there's been some some pretty neat work about, you know, observational or passive forms of supervision where by just observing the way that a person uses a particular, you know, search interface or application, we're able to come up with relevant signals that could be used for for additional supervision. There's also some interesting work in the direction of, you know, I, I sort of hinted at this before, but other types of modalities. So when it comes to, you know, doing machine learning over video, for example, that's just massive amounts of data. You can, there's no way you could have humans feasibly labeling every frame of video in a large corpus of videos. And so that's an area where there's potential for big win of these, or by these somewhat automated approaches. And some of the, the work recently published out of that group has been pretty neat in this direction. Okay, well, Braden, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And I'm really impressed with the Snorkel Project. So best of luck. Thanks a bunch. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. 